Hey listeners, the episode you're about to hear is one that we recorded before our first episode aired. This podcast is a passion project for both of us, and we're learning a lot as we go, mostly learning from our own mistakes. Unfortunately, with this episode, we didn't have that opportunity because we hadn't yet heard our mistakes, so please excuse the imperfect audio quality, awkward pauses, excessive ums, and background acknowledgements. Editing can only correct so much, but we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and grow with us, and we'll be doing our best to improve in future episodes. Hello, and welcome to Lion and Mouse Commentary. We are your hosts, Holland and Tori, two best friends as different as a lion and a mouse. Today, we are reviewing Stranger Things Season 1, and we will be ranking it on an objective scale of 0 to 10, with only two points allotted for personal taste. Feel free to agree, disagree, or just learn about something new. Just be sure to tread lightly. There are spoilers ahead. And cut to the intro. safe enough to host a mouse. For our new listeners, we will be breaking down the scoring system by category as we go, but the full breakdown is also available on our socials and our website. So let's get started. So today I chose Stranger Things Season 1 for us to review. We have both seen this prior to uh, reviewing it and watching it for this episode. Um, This is my choice because I really do enjoy the show. It's a TV series released by Netflix on July 15th, 2016. There are eight episodes in season one. It's the first of four seasons. Season four, as of the date we are recording, has yet to be released, but it will be released in part one and two, I believe. It was created by the Duffer Brothers, Matt and Ross Duffer. It was additionally produced by Sean Levy and Dan Cohen. Stars Winona Ryder, David Harbour, Finn Wolfhard, Millie Bobby Brown, Gaten Maserato, and Caleb McLaughlin. That's the top six build cast of the show. In the first 35 days of release, the ratings reported that 14.07 million adults had watched season one. That's pretty incredible. It was a pretty big <laughs> smash hit when it was released, and it continues to be a very popular series. The uh, Wikipedia synopsis of the show is the first season begins in November 1983 when researchers at Hawkins National Laboratory open a rift to the Upside Down, which is an alternate dimension that reflects into the real world. (laughs) A monstrous humanoid creature escapes and abducts a boy named Will Byers and a teenage girl named Barbara Holland. Will's mother, Joyce, and the town's police chief, Jim Hopper, search for Will. At the same time, A young psychokinetic girl who goes by the name Eleven escapes from the laboratory and assists Will's friends, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas in their own efforts to find Will. Um, So that is the Wikipedia summary. If you don't want any more spoilers, stop listening now. Go watch it for yourself. But we are going to go ahead and get into our first category. So our first category is plot, story, and cohesion. Um, And one thing for TV shows is that we wanted to make sure that there was some sort of resolution through the the season. um, Since we're not doing this in uh, any wider um, analysis than one season at a time, we had sort of wanted to see... Uh, what happens in the course of just that season. Correct. Um, So I also kind of want to let everybody know that this is going to be our longest episode yet and may be split into two parts. Me and Holland have pages of notes for the first time. Um, All of our other episodes had a page of notes and we each have pages now. And with very small print, so... Yeah, this is a massive (laughs) undertaking to do season one. When we made that decision, we didn't think about how long it would take for us to review each category. So moving forward, we may do TV shows in sections of four or five episodes instead of entire seasons, just because we didn't understand the undertaking um, at the original uh, choosing of this. So anyway, but moving into plot, story, and cohesion... Two total points allotted. I gave it two out of two points. Excellent. Um, I think there's a lot of really positive things about the plot, um, and I'm just going to dive in. I'm going to try to be as concise as possible because I know we have so much to get through. Um, But all of my notes are going to be kind of chronological, as in, you know, because I've been taking notes as I go, so it's going to kind of start at the beginning and go through the end 
Right. So, um, I think foreshadowing at its finest happens in episode one. They're all playing Dungeons and Dragons, and Will goes, the Demogorgon, it got me. Yeah. And you're like, (laughs) 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 you shouldn't have spoken that into existence, Will. Um... I think it's, uh, but I think it's tasteful foreshadowing. Uh, sometimes I think foreshadowing can be too direct. And while this is quite direct foreshadowing, I think it's very effective yeah. foreshadowing. Um, I think the introduction of Eleven is pr- pretty brilliant. Um, the pacing slows down a little bit. There's a lot of like s- these slow drawn out moments and beats and it sort of makes the audience tense and worried. You have no idea like who she is. Why is she not saying anything? Why is her head shaved? Why is she in a hospital gown? There's a lot of questions that get raised within just seconds of her introduction. Um, I think in episode one, the pacing is basically perfect. I don't think that's always the case through the series, but I think in episode one, the pacing is pretty much perfect. Um, Going into episode two, we start to sort of get these context clues um, to Eleven's past and condition. Uh, We start to see sort of these flashbacks into the laboratory and kind of what she's been through, uh, the sorts of things that they would prompt her to do. I think there's also, we get some context clues um, even in just some of her current behavior. So there's a scene where they are, they give her some clothes to change into and Mike is like, you can go change in the bathroom and she just does not want the door closed. And you're like, what, like what kid is so afraid of of being in a closed room? Right. Um, you start to just these small little snippets of like, why is that such a big deal for her? Right. Um, so I think in a situation like that, it's kind of, and because you have so much more time in a TV series, you get to have these moments where you just slowly peel back the layers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like a big reveal um, into the past of any character because you're given so much time to explore that. Um, I think that uh, season one starts to change pace around. It's all centered around what I would call or label Joyce's unraveling. Yeah. Um these manic moments that we get from Joyce feel faster and then the show seems to slow when the focus shifts away from her. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of why I labeled it like her unraveling and mm-hmm. I think it drives a lot of the momentum of the show and they move the plot a little faster when she's having like a breakdown. Yeah. And she's not always having a breakdown during the series. I mean, she, don't get me wrong, she's always worried and tense and you know, acting weirdly, but I would say, like, it's the manic moments that sort of launch you into, like, the next part of the momentum. Yeah. I'm going through these notes really fast, but uh, <laughs> I, I just feel like we have so much to talk about. I, I wanted to give everything yeah. a proper time. Um, so many things trigger experiment memories for Eleven, um, and to me it's it was just notable to see, like, how much abuse she went through in the name of science. And I think it's a plot point that really drives home to the viewer that she is a young child, and I think sometimes they, as a viewer, you need to have that put back into perspective because you start to see her with other children her age that are children and just being children. And she's been completely deprived of that. Mm -hmm. She has absolutely no um, experience being a child. She's just been abused in a laboratory for science for as long as we know. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a clear cut, like, when did this start for her? it's just all she's ever known, and it's all we ever see her remembering. Right. She has really no positive memories that she ever flashes back to. Every flashback that Eleven has is something terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, something that, you know, adults shouldn't have to go through, let alone children Eleven's age. Right. So I think it's just, it, it, it sort of makes you build this sort of hatred for what is now being led to be the antagonist. And I think a lot of times people are watching Stranger Things and they're like, 
what's the antagonist? Oh, it's the Demigorgon. The Demigorgon's the antagonist, and don't get me wrong, Demigorgon out here stealing people or whatever. Yeah, but, it's like the most obvious villain. But it's really not the villain of the series. Right. The villain of the series is Hawkins Lab and the people heading that up. Right. Mainly the doctor... Uh, what's his name? Dr... Dr. Brenner. Dr. Brenner. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but then, okay, so moving on, there is a super pivot in the story, mm-hmm. and that's when Hop goes to the bar and gets confirmation that Will's body wasn't legit. Yeah. He gets confirmation from that guy. He's chilling at the bar. Dude doesn't know who he is. And he gets that information out of him, and it shifts the whole story. There's a whole pivot there. Um, I think it it kind of leads us into, okay, now something can be done about this. Right. I think there's a part in every story that it, it should feel almost hopeless. Mm-hmm. And then something, whatever that catalyst is makes you feel like now we can do something about this. And for season one, I think that's the moment where you're like, now something can be done about this. Hop has the confirmation that he needs, and now he can do something about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- This is a side note, but they kind of show in one of the flashbacks, or, or no, no, it's when Hop goes to Hawkins' lab, and he finds the room that Eld used to live in, and there's a drawing of Papa mm-hmm. and a little child. And I think it is one of the most unsettling story pieces in the entire thing. Yeah. Because how incredibly sad is it that Eleven, all she's ever known for any sort of care or guardianship is this crazy lunatic, abusive scientist man. Yeah. And like, it just like broke my heart for her because it's like, this is all she knows mm-hmm. as any sort of parent figure. And like, she deserves so much better than that. Yeah. So I think it's just like an unsettling piece and it's there's no dialogue associated with it. Right. It's just him seeing the picture and it's just incredibly unsettling. Yeah. Um I did notice some incontinuities. Yeah. Or a incontinuity. So after Jonathan and Nancy decide that they're going to start to hunt the demigorgon. Uh-huh. Jonathan says in that scene that he was 10 when he had to kill that rabbit. Yeah, his dad made him. Yep. Yeah. And But then later, mm-hmm. in the same scene, mm-hmm. she's like, are you sure you... When they see the deer, she's yeah. like, are you sure you can do this? And he's like, I'm not nine anymore. Uh, and I was like, hold up. Yeah. Is that an incontinuity? Yeah, it is. Sure sounds like an incontinuity. I don't know if he delivered the line wrong. Right. Or if... My guess is that it was an incontinuity in the script, and they filmed those parts of the scene completely separate days. Oh, yeah. So nobody thought. Nobody caught it. Yeah, nobody caught it, which... Or if it was supposed to be like that, it's incontinuitous for the viewer. Right. And you're like, you just said you were 10 here, and now you're saying you're not 9 anymore? Like, yeah. what does that mean? Mm, that's a good catch. So I don't know. Um, I do have a, a small note in here that says, if this show doesn't make you distrust the government, <laughs> what will? Right, right. Yeah. Um, and then another thing I wrote is, like, where do you find all of these lab people? Like, how do you interview these people? <laughs> what duties do you describe for them? Like, where did all these people come from? Yeah. Like, are they... I mean, obviously, they're not all scientists. There's guards and, you know, probably janitors and stuff. And it's like, how do you be like, yes, please come work for our crazy scientific well, lab where we do experiments on children you know, outside of their consent. Well, in the uh, in the story, because I, I made a note of this and I wanted to, to see kind of how the story would kind of justify as it unfolds, it's the Department of Energy that the building, the lab, it's the Department of Energy. So USAjobs.gov would be where you would apply to those jobs. That's how they get their people. Right, right, right. But like... So, you show up for your first day and you're like, <laughs> no, I know, I so know. what's this place about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's our uh, our collection of, of kidnapped children. We're going to do some psycho, you know, experiments on them and see what their minds can do. I'd be like, I'm going to go home now. Yeah, I'm sure they would probably <laughs> vet you extensively before they'd let you into that area of the department. I guess. But You'd have, they'd have probably have to blackmail on you before I guess they'd I'm let just, you get there. I was just watching this like... 
like, how do you find people to do this stuff? Like, is there this many psycho people in the world? But I guess there might be. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, the the information that's come out of on these unethical experiments that they've been, the government has funded. That's or true. that, you know, laboratories have conducted and, you know, it, 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 it is, has happened so it clearly. It is a, a parallel to the real world, I right, suppose. Right, right. Um, I only have two more plot notes. Um, one of those is I got goosebumps both times I watched season one. Um, in the scene where Eleven is in the bath, the pool, because she's trying to find Will and Barbara. And she starts to panic in the water. And Joyce literally just, like, holds her until she calmed down. And it, it's, it gave me goosebumps because... Eleven has never had this, ever. And so she always associates this bath, this immersion, uh, the saltwater immersion, with, like, the most panicky, anxious memories. And so I think giving her the opportunity to be comforted in that moment when she knows she's doing it to try to be helpful, because that's Eleven's goal. Like, she just wants to be helpful to these kids. And, you know, but doing so causes her so much anxiety because of all she's been through. And so I think having that moment where she can kind of be comforted at the end of that was really important to not just uh, Eleven's, like, storytelling, but also Joyce's. Because it kind of just solidifies that, like, Joyce's only concern is the children, and that's why she's so concerned for her own son, of course. And so now she has this girl that she doesn't know that's doing everything in her power to try to find her son, and so she just takes so much compassion on her, and I think that's a really nice moment in the story. Yeah. Um, and then at the very end of the season, it was, there was the parallel cuts between Joyce giving Will CPR... Well, Joyce and Hopper giving Will CPR, mm-hmm. and now we're cutting back to Hopper's memories mm-hmm. of them giving Sarah CPR in the hospital as she was dying. Right. And I was just like, it just like rips your heart, yeah. you know, and yeah. you're watching this and you're like, oh, he's been here before and he's seen it not end well. Mm-hmm. And here he is again, seeing it happen again. Is it going to end well? Like, you don't want him to have to go through that again. So right. you're kind of like rooting, not just for Will and Joyce, but now you're rooting for Hop too, because you're like, he's done so much work for them and you really don't want to see it come up like as a bad ending. Right. Um, so I think it, it was kind of just like a nice final issue, final worry of the series yeah. was that. Um, so I thought it was really good kind of seeing that parallel that he's been through this before and, and here we are again. Yeah. So that's all my plot notes. Two out of two points. All right. Well, I uh, gave it one and a half points out of two, since we can do half points in our ranking system. Um, I gave it 1.5 out of two. Um, I'll explain where the half point kind of, where, you know, why, because I, I really enjoyed it to the point where I think it, it could merit a two out of two. So I don't disagree with your rating, but I'll explain why I kind of took half a point off. Um, so the... You know, positives, I think, with the kind of the plot, the story, and the cohesion of this this series, or this first season, um, I, I agree. I think the pacing is excellent. Um, I think that it's a very compelling story. It really grabs you and kind of pulls you into this kind of small town feel. Um, I think it, overall, it balances kind of humor and suspense very well. You don't watch the, you don't watch an episode and at the end of it, you're exhausted because you were on edge the whole time. So I think it, it does a great job of kind of telling you this story and it gives you these, this moment of intensity and this suspense, but then it gives you a little bit of levity. It lets you kind of laugh at these kids or laugh at something that's happened and kind of enjoy something or like, um, you know, it takes place in, you know, the 1980s, so you see something that's kind of nostalgic if you grew up in the 80s, and so you have these moments where there's some levity blended with this, you know, very intense story. Um, so overall, I think the story's told very well. I think the dialogue and the writing is exceptional. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about watching the show was I kept taking notes trying to find why this character said this and why, okay, why are they showing us this, you know, moment? Why is this character saying this? And then, you know, the next episode or a couple episodes later, that was explained. There was a reason for it. I think in delivering the story, they did a great job of every moment was necessary and it 
the whole plot kind of unfolded like an onion. You just peeled back another layer and it's like, oh, that's why this character said this earlier. You peel back another layer, oh, that's why this happened. Um, so overall, a couple kind of specific notes I have. Uh, I think the, you know, the scene where they're showing these search parties of people looking for Will and it's like the whole town is out there. It gives you this sense of this is a small town where everybody knows everybody. Um, the school has an assembly for Will because he's missing. Karen brings Joyce a casserole. You know, so it just really, these small moments, Hopper knows everybody. You know, they know Hopper and Joyce, you know, know other people. So they'll the all all the characters in the town feel very connected and it gives you um, reason to empathize for all of these people because you feel like you've just stepped into this very small town. Yeah, I, I, yeah one thing I did notice is that it's almost like everybody in the town is like rooting for the return of Will and Barbara. Right, right. Um, I think that I wrote that I think episode four is really the turning point in the series. That's when you start to learn that all these quote unquote crazy people are the ones who are right. So um, I think one thing in the story that they do a really good job of when you're watching this is you don't know if Joyce is crazy or not. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing like in the rewatch of this show, I kind of wish that I could go back and watch it for the first time with, you know, kind of like wipe my memory like Men in Black and be able yeah. to watch it for the first Fresh time. Because there were a couple of things that I kind of noticed and I was discussing it with my brother and he was like, but I think the whole, the purpose of that is because you're, you don't know if Joyce is crazy or not. You don't know if she's having a mental breakdown and if she's really seeing these things Which happen. you really couldn't blame her if she was because right. of the amount of stress she's under. Right. So and it's, you don't hate her for it even before you know she's not actually crazy. Right. And it's like when you see, you know, the demigorgon start to press through the wall of her home and she chops a hole in the wall with an axe, you don't, you question, did she really see that? Or did she just think she saw that? We don't know. Like as the viewer, it does a great job of you're kind of having these moments where you're like, is this woman really crazy or is she right all along? And I think episode four, you really get that turning point where you're like, oh, she was right all along. Um, and kind of like that episode five with the funeral scene, like you're seeing, you know, this, these kids and, you know, Joyce and they're having a funeral for Will and like none of them are buying it. Um, you know, so you, um, you know, these kind of moments where Joyce being like, is she crazy or not? The moments in that storytelling, I think, are done really well where, you know, people are saying like, you know, she's been, you know, a few steps away from the edge for a mm -hmm. while. And um, so I think that's really good. I think they do a great job. There's kind of this symmetry in connecting when Will goes missing, Eleven is found. So I think that's a great symmetry. You know, Will has left this really well-integrated friend group and now Eleven has been found by this friend group. And so she doesn't in any way take his place, but I think that's good symmetry in that storytelling. Mm, that's um, a good point. I never would have thought of that. Yeah. Um, and I think that in that kind of symmetry there, Hopper is kind of the thread between them that kind of pushes that story forward as to something's going on, something is wrong. And mm. he's kind of the one that has to kind of fill that out. Um, like an example of where I was like, is this, this doesn't really make any sense. Um, you see Hopper, there's a scene where they show Hopper in bed with this random woman and he gets up and she comes out and checks on him. And you're like, why is this scene in this movie? Is this supposed to like paint Hopper as this womanizer? Like, what's the point of this? Like, is this part of his, you know, just part of his character, you know, but then, um, you know, it feels like it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't fit into the story at all. But then you later see this is the librarian that he's talking to in the library that, you know, he wants her help when he's looking for, through this microfilm. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of felt like that was still a little unnecessary. You know, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it's a little inconsistent because it's this one moment where you see Hopper as this, you know, this dirtbag who's kind of sleeping around, but then it's like, oh, well, oh, she just happens to be the librarian too. Um, so I felt like that was a little, um, another um, aspect of the plot that I thought was kind of um, like, I don't know if it was if it's really a plot hole or if it's just unnecessary, but the scene where Jonathan goes to Lonnie's house 
and to go talk to his dad and he kind of confronts his dad. It's kind of like, why is this in this? When that happened, I was kind of, it was a little jarring. I was like, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. In one sense it does because when a child goes missing, typically they're, they're, they were, you know, if they were abducted, it was a family member that was responsible for that, like in, you know, real world situations. So did they put that in there because, um, you know, because, oh, well, if Will's missing, maybe Lon maybe his dad had something to do with it. And so Jonathan goes to Lonnie to, t you know, talk to him or about it. Or even if he didn't have anything to do about it, would Will have stopped by? Right. Would, you know, would he have... There's so many possibilities. Right. So, yeah. But that's never really explained. Um, one thing I kind of thought was maybe they they did that because that kind of plants the seed in Jonathan's mind because he's then becomes so against his mom. He's so unsupportive of his mom being like, he now thinks that, you know, his mom is crazy. Um, so I thought maybe that was the point of that, but it wasn't ever really explained. So I thought that in, in telling that story, I wish there was a little bit of clarity in... So I'll just tell you my perspective yeah, on that scene. Yeah, go ahead. So my perspective of that scene is it's obvious that Jonathan and his dad do not have a good relationship, if hardly any relationship at all. Right. And the way that Lonnie speaks of Will throughout mm -hmm. the series sort of solidifies that he and Will don't really have a relationship at all. Right. So I saw that scene as more of an opportunity to drive into the fact that Will and Jonathan have a broken home mm -hmm. and it adds to the stress and chaos of trying to figure out where Will is because he, they don't have kind of that like two parent support right. that the other children perhaps in the friend group would. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was kind of, it kind of just like gives to the point that like, you know, Lonnie is not really involved in his kids' mm -hmm. lives. Right. And, so it it plants sort of this distrust in Jonathan, even more so of his dad, but also his dad, because he is his dad, you know, he's able to plant that little seed of doubt about Joyce. Yeah. So now Jonathan has less trust in both of his parents. Right. In that moment. And I think that, I think it kind of serves as an introduction to you know, it introduces Lonnie at the beginning and then it also kind of gives you as the viewer a reason to be suspicious of him when he suddenly shows shows up for the funeral and now he's like supporting Joyce and it's like, this right. doesn't make sense because we saw this guy be a complete dirtbag to his own son. Right. So I, I think that there's rationale in that, but I also think there's a little bit of a, a little bit of inconsistency because if Jonathan hates his father so much and there's this flashback where he's telling Will like, you don't really want to hang out with him anyways. Like he doesn't like you or care about you or, you know, if he has so much animosity toward his own dad, why would he then agree with him that his mom could be the one who's crazy and his dad is right and rational? But I, I'm not going to necessarily, you know, take points off for that. I just think it's a little bit of an inconsistency I there. wonder if Jonathan, this is just a thought that popped into my head right now. I wonder if Jonathan holds a tiny smidge of bitterness against Joyce because since his parents have split, he has, it's been established that Jonathan has taken on a huge role in that household at a pretty young age. Yeah. Kid's still in high school. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if he is so quick to agree or maybe not agree, but not defend his uh, the comments about Joyce that Lonnie gives because he has already been feeling so tired. Yeah. At home. Yeah. I think that's that's fair. Um, uh, overall, though, I think I, I one thing I do like about the plot is how it just slowly reveals more and more as you go along. And it gives you reason to keep watching. It really engages you because you're, you're seeing more and more of what's really behind the curtain as you go. Um, another thing like with the plot I like is that all of Hopper's suspicions are legitimate. Mm -hmm. They're real concerns that a real human being would have. It's not like this character suddenly got this harebrained idea of, hmm, maybe it's this evil lab that's causing a, this child to disappear. Like, that that would be a really odd thing to think, is that if a child goes missing in a town where nothing really ever happens to it, oh, it was the big bad lab down the street. He has rational, reasonable suspicions that lead him to the lab in, you know, as, yeah. as the story progresses. So I, I appreciated that about the plot. Um, the reason I did take half a point off... Um, I'm kind of get into that a little bit. I think that this movie does a great job of playing, uh, or of, you know, kind of paying, you know, 
homage to these 80 classic 80s films but I think in doing so there are certain things that are kind of tropey and predictable okay um so for example I kind of I was kind of making a list as I was watching um like uh Steve sneaking into Nancy's bedroom window like that's classic classic trope um the fact that um Mike's parents are completely clueless all the time they're just completely out of touch unaware of anything that's going on um kids sneaking out in the middle of the night the middle schoolers these kids are total nerds they have this quirky science teacher who's like their ally um that the fact they're in the AV club they're not on a baseball team or a football team they're just these dorky nerds um that's true the fact that the parents never go down into the basement like Come on, you're telling me parents never, they would never go down there and find out what was going on. Right. Um, the fact that Hopper's two deputies are these bumbling idiot cops. Um, the third act breakup where Eleven, you know, Lucas gets suspicious of Eleven and now they have this breakup of their friend group. Um, this love triangle between Nancy, Jonathan, and Steve. All those things are, are I think, are, are pretty, they're very common in film and in stories because they're, they're things that happen in real life and they definitely happened in the 80s and they happened in all these 80s films but I thought those moments overall although it's it's a good tribute to classic 80s films and it's you know very common in stories and in real life I thought that some of those moments I just kind of noted were a little tropey and kind of overplayed and overused in film in general um and uh, one, uh, one plot hole I kind of noticed in, in addition to kind of the one you mentioned is in episode three, when Nancy goes to Steve's house and she tells Barb, you know, to go home, like, why don't you just leave? You know, I, I don't need a ride. Just go home. Cause she wants to go upstairs with Steve. Um, so Barb leaves and Nancy assumes Barb has left with her car. And we know that other mysterious things have happened, but Barb leaves. She has no ride home, but then she just magically walks through the door of her house at home. Like, Steve was in bed asleep. She was like, Steve, I'm gonna leave. And he didn't wake up. How did Nancy get home? Did, I guess she walked. Did she walk she all the way to, home? right? Yeah, I mean, it, it it's never explained, and it's not necessary to explain it, but she Well, I guess if the implication is that Hawkins is a small town, it could be that Steve literally lives a street and a half away. Right, like, you but know. their house is huge. They clearly don't live in the same neighborhood. True. His house is huge. It's in a rich, like, wealthy neighborhood. Barb, dr- she had Barb drive her to True. Steve's house. I just thought, and that it's is, not. I never thought about that, but you're right. It's she not, had to have walked the whole yeah, way home. Yeah, it's not necessary to the plot. I don't think that's necessarily a, you know, a, you know, a flaw. Um, but I thought that was interesting. It's like, she literally is like, Barb, go home. And then she just. I don't need you. Just go home. And then she just magically appears. How did she get home if Barb drove her there? But, um, and then another (laughs) thing in the plot that I thought was just really, I thought it was just kind of unbelievable. Um, and I think this did contribute to me taking off half a point is the scene where Troy is at, they're at the kind of the cliff um, side. I don't remember what it's called in the film. And he's telling Mike to jump off a cliff Like, he's, like, the height of that cliff, this bully is literally telling Mike to jump off a cliff and die. Like, he's trying to murder a classmate (laughs) because he peed himself in public. Like, this is, this is really extreme. Like, he, he pulls a knife on this guy and is literally trying to talk this kid into committing suicide. Yeah. Like, that's just a lit, to me... I think it, it's a little bit. Much. It's a little extreme. Mm-hmm. So I thought I, when I was watching it again and like really thinking about it, I was like, "What? I mean, I'm not sure. There are there are bad people everywhere, True. even in middle school." But I was like, "And Mike was about to do it. He was about to <laughs> literally jump to his death." I mean, granted, it made for a really cool scene when Eleven came in and saved the day. But I was like. This is a little ridiculous. But overall, I think the plot is exceptional. I love watching a movie or or a TV series, any kind of film media, where everything that happens in the plot is for a purpose and for a reason. Every dialogue was for a purpose and for a reason. And as you watch it and rewatch it, it has great rewatchability. You see why the writers and directors and creators made those decisions that they made. Yeah, I think the the intentionality that is everywhere in season one really is to be admired. And I think that it deserves the hype that it got. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. 
All right. Okay. Moving on to category two. <laughs> yep. Uh, is characters, which again is a three possible points. I gave it two out of three points. All right. Um, and I'll I'll just start through my notes. So, at the at the beginning, so when Will goes to call nine one one, um, because he's hearing something kind of like chasing him or whatever. Yeah. He. This is either good directing or just good acting on the part of Noah Schnapp, but he is trembling when he picks the yeah. phone up. Yeah. And it's just like so good. Mm-hmm. And because it's, I feel like a lot of children actors have a really hard time with like appropriate physical movement mm-hmm. in scenes. Yeah. So I don't expect a lot out of them. But his little tremble in that scene is so believable mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh, okay, like you just buy it. You yeah. Know? He's yeah. literally terrified out of his mind and he cannot stop the shaking. Yeah. Like it it seems so natural. Mm-hmm. Um but also I think that there's a lot to be said for Winona Ryder's performance in the whole season. Oh, absolutely. I um, agree. She I has agree. these, like, really subtle moments. And it's funny because then she has these very large mo- moments through a lot of the, the season. Mm-hmm. But it's the subtle moments that I think she really shines the most. She has these, like, small looks that just, like, weigh a ton on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, she has, like, a lot of intentionality when she finally disconnects herself from whatever is distracting her that day, whether it's work or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she actually looks at one of her sons. There's just like, like it's just the focus as you can tell. It's just like laser focus. Mm -hmm. And like Joyce, now nothing else matters. Right. Like it's just her son or whatever. And I think it's moments, small moments like that, that are not loud, Mm -hmm. but say a lot about Winona Ryder's performance that I think are to be admired. Yeah. Um, I think it's very entertaining, the uh, opposites that you see um, in Joyce and Hopper. Yeah. They're very opposite through the through a lot of the series. They mm-hmm. have the same goal, yeah. but their personalities and um, sort of, I guess, ways of attacking that problem are just so different yeah. that once they finally can kind of find a way to work together... Um, it's very effective, but before that, it's just almost entertaining. Yeah. Um, not to say that I'm trying to, like, make fun of it or anything like that, but uh, I think it's just something interesting to notice. Um, I think there are some really funny moments, like there's a scene where the Wheeler family is at dinner, and Mike is just, like, yelling at the dinner table, and Holly is sitting in her... Uh, like high chair, high chair, just yeah. like sipping juice, <laughs> like looking around. Yeah, and to me, it's just so funny. Yeah. Um. There. Uh. I think. I know some of my notes seem like I'm bouncing around. It's because I've been take. I was taking notes just from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um. There's that whole situation where Hopper lies about where his daughter is. Yeah. Yeah. And if Hawkins is a small town, mm-hmm. there are people who know. Well, and, and you what get happened. you get evidence of that when he's when they're in the search party, and that lady tells. Yep. Um, who is it? The science teacher. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mr. Clark. Yeah. She tells him, you know, his daughter died. Yeah. Like, and so it's like I wonder to myself, why? Why would you lie about it? Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it comes down to the point where that's a very painful and intimate thing to share with somebody that you don't know or trust very well. Sure. So that's probably why the lying happens, but it's such an easily disproved lie that it makes me wonder uh, kind of his motivations behind that. But I don't think, I don't necessarily hold it against Hopper. Um, I think it's probably a very, very hard thing to talk about. Um, So I wrote Justice for Barb, but then I wrote in... (laughs) All caps, but also justice for Benny. (laughs) Because this poor man is the first man Mm -hmm. who shows, the first person who shows Eleven any kind of kindness. And then he gets shot in the forehead for it. And I hate it. And she has to see it happen. And it's like, you 
put a smidgen of trust into the first stranger mm-hmm. that shows you any kindness and now this is what happens to them that probably would associate a feeling of guilt into 11 it's right. like anywhere i go people are going to get hurt like mm-hmm. is you know I, I feel like that's kind of like a very complicated layer to yeah. the character of 11 um but it also just makes me so sad for Benny I know, because I, know. I mean he really was trying to do the right thing mm-hmm. and he was a you know upstanding guy with a lot of integrity and he really just wanted to do the best thing for this girl and so he used the resource he thought would be best which is child protective services not knowing yeah. that that was going to be cloaked in you know a government lie right. and they were going to take her back and harm him for it. Right. Um, so, well, and then he, dang justice for Benny, please. Yeah, well, and then he, he even, like, recants it when she shows up. He's like, actually, you know... Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, this, this... I, I think Benny is a great character, and he's, I, he's you know, one of my, like, favorite characters in this show. And when, watch, I remember watching it for the first time, being like this guy's my favorite character and then he dies and I have a reputation let if my favorite character in a show in a show or a movie will always be the one who dies but I you know I think that that's just how it goes sometimes yeah um my next note is a question and it is why is Jonathan the creepiest person ever (laughs) so Jonathan is my least favorite character in this whole show yeah I feel like he does a lot of terribly creepy things to Nancy and then he gets rewarded by basically becoming her boyfriend by yeah. the end of season one. I hate it. Yeah. yeah. And he should not be rewarded for his creepy peeping behavior. Yeah. No. Well, to be fair, he's not her boyfriend at the end. Steve is right. still her boyfriend but at the end. But it's very obvious yes. that there's some there's sort a of love triangle between Yeah, they've them. got a spark. She, you know, she's not against the idea. It's made very evident. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... Ugh, Jonathan. Jonathan is the reason that this does not have full three points. Yeah. I'm just gonna go ahead and say that. Yeah. Um, my next note is... Uh, Barb needs some stitches. She's bleeding out in the pool. (laughs) Like, why would she not say, I won't stop bleeding. Her hand is wrapped in a towel and she's still bleeding through it. Why did she not say? I know. Like, she, like, that happened quite a while ago, and, then, and she's still bleeding. And then Nancy's like, why don't you go home? If I was Barb, I would have gotten in my car and driven to the emergency room. <laughs> yeah. Barb, yep. why? Why did yep. you go back out and sit in the pool and yep. bleed out until you got stolen? Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I was like, no. Mm-hmm. Um, another character that I wish I liked more, but I don't, yeah. is Mike. Mm. He is so tunnel vision in everything. He is a smidge selfish. He is bossy. And don't get me wrong, do I think, you know, in every sort of friend group or even friend pairing, you're going to have one that's like naturally more likely to take charge of a situation, etc, etc. But he's bossy to the point of annoying me. (laughs) Interesting. I don't dislike Mike, but there are certain things about him where I'm like, can we, can you just please stop Mike Mm. for like half a second. And most of that has to do with the fact that he is so tunnel vision that when he has a goal or current objective, he cannot see anything outside of this. And so he almost comes across a little reckless Mm -hmm. um, in that kind of situation or inconsiderate Mm -hmm. to anybody outside of that tunnel. Yeah. Um, And he is young, so I'm, I try not to hold it against him too much. But the other boys are not like that, mm-hmm. um, so, which is why I made note of it. Um, Lucas, being the cynical one in the group, is honestly probably my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the dynamic that the group needs. Um, they're all very, like, accepting of this strange girl who says nothing with a shaved head. Yeah. And Lucas is like, does not, does nobody notice how weird this is? And I think he's sort of like that voice of reality that, um, especially Mike, but sometimes Dustin needs as well. And I think that the show sort of paints Lucas to kind of be, like, this unaccepting, um, like, inclusive sort of 
friend, but I didn't see it like that at all. You mean like exclusive? Exclusive, like he's yeah. 11? Yeah, like he tries to exclude Eleven. I think the show tries to paint him that way, and yeah. I don't think it's necessarily fair mm-hmm. because I think a healthy cynicism keeps you safe. Right. And I think that in a situation like this where your friend is already missing mm-hmm. um, and now another teenager in the in the community has gone missing and then you hear of other people kind of going mi- missing too. I think they mention um, at the police station that like somebody and his son was out on a boat and went missing or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think like deer hunting. Deer hunting, like yeah, something missing, like that. Yeah. And so it's like now you know that this is now a problem outside of your own friend group. Right. And I think that Lucas is the only one that's like, you know, the decisions that we make could, like, be a problem right. if we trust people that we don't know. Right. So, you know, I, I think Lucas is a, is a great character and serves that purpose very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly forgot Holly was a character until I rewatched this show. Yeah. Forgot she was a character. I get that she's a toddler and basically says nothing, but she serves zero purpose. Well, I think that she... So, she almost served zero purpose, except... The scene at Joyce's? Right. Yeah. Which I think is... the I think the purpose of that, in addition to it being kind of this um, tribute to Poltergeist, um, I think that it is necessary because the only time... It's the only time up to that point... Where someone other than Joyce sees what she's seeing. And so I think for that reason, but it couldn't be an adult, you know, I mean, it could be Hopper. And I suppose it makes sense to make it a character that isn't old enough to really verbalize and be believed. And really understand what's going on. That's true. So I I guess, I guess I'll give Holly that credit. Then she serves that purpose. But otherwise, I think the, I think the other thing she does is she gives, the like thinking about this now, she kind of gives Mike's parents to not focus on what Mike and Nancy are doing. That's it's, true, I it, suppose. It the com- youngest always gets the most attention. Yeah, it's like her, and especially because it looks like there's a quite a few years between Mike and Holly, right? Where there's less years between Nancy and Mike, right? And it's like the whole time where Eleven is in Mike's house and nobody else is home. Like, why is the mom not there? Oh, well, she's she's coming in the house with groceries and Holly's in her arm. Like, yeah. So it kind of, in in a way, I agree. She's a, she's an extremely minor character, but I think she also is kind of that catalyst that serves a purpose to why. Why don't, why don't Mike's parents ever pay attention to what okay. he's doing? Why don't they pay attention to what Nancy's doing? She's just sneaking out of the house. and okay. so. I'll concede that point. Yeah. Um, my next note is that the most perfect casting choice in the entire show mm-hmm. is David Harbour as Hopper. Mm. Um, I think the whole show is cast very well, so I'm not saying that the other choices are not good. Yeah. But I think that I could not picture any other actor in the role of Hopper after watching David Harbour be Hopper. Um, I just think he's ideal um, for that sort of role. I think he he is very good at sort of building the character of Hopper in a way that when he's first introduced, he almost tries to make himself feel very one-sided. And then as you go through the series or the season, you kind of realize he's absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But he delivers them in such a paced way that it's he doesn't, He's not showing all the cards of his hand mm-hmm. at once. Yeah. And I think that makes him very interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a very good acting choice, too, because he is so subtle mm-hmm. um, most of the time. And then there are these moments where you just kind of see through the cracks of the armor. Yeah. And I think it's very effective acting. Mm-hmm. So kudos to David Harbour. Um, okay, so next note. And this kind of goes back to Mike being generally sh- selfish. I understand that he is upset when he thinks that Will is dead, but he becomes so hateful to Eleven in that episode. I want to shake him. (laughs) He, it's like, you have made the choice to bring Eleven into your home and trust her into your friend group. And I get that you're mad and you're upset and you're young and you don't really know how to deal with this whole grief and you think your best friend is dead. So like, I'm not begrudging any of that, but these are the choices that you made and it's not Eleven's fault because you've decided to include her in all of this. Um, Especially when you don't even know her or understand her well enough to know that 
she had no control over this, even despite her psychic powers. Yeah. He almost puts too much faith in her psychic powers to brand her as, like, some sort of superhero that can save Will because he doesn't take the time or have the patience to learn her in such a way that he would care to have any sort of explanation before just jumping into this is your fault, it's his fault, you're dead sort of thing. And I'm like, that is a huge thing to throw on another child, especially a child who it's obviously has been through so much. So that moment, I'm just like, oh, Mike, please stop. Like, so that's one of the Mike, please stop moments. Yeah. For me. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think overall that is, but, uh, but at the same time, I, I mean, I would agree, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of hard for the, for, to expect a middle school boy to have that level of maturity. Yeah. I think that it's realistic that a middle school boy who's like, this is so cool. We found a superhero girl and she's living in my house. She's going to help us find Will. And she says she can help us find Will. And here she is leading us to Will's house, which doesn't make any sense. But she said she knows she's seen Will. She recognized him in his picture. And so she's going to help us find Will. And she's got superpowers. This is like a comic book. And then all of a sudden, Will's body is being drug up a, sure, sure, know, out no. of a lake. I think it's, it's difficult for a you know, a 12-year-old to have that level of maturity. I get what you're saying, but I guess for me, it's a huge inconsistency in Mike's character where, because he's been gunning for this the whole time, it would be, it would make way more sense if that had come from Lucas. And he does have a moment, you know, a confrontation with Will and, uh, or not Will, with Mike and Eleven. Mm -hmm. But I believe that way more. And I accept Lucas's confrontation way more than I accept... Mike's. Yeah. I just think that it's a little inconsistent to Mike's whole, like, the arc he's been going in. It's almost like now I I get confused, like, well, then what is it that you want, you know, if, if not this? Yeah. Like, you've been agreeing to this and pushing for this, and now you're acting like you never wanted any of that. So I, it just it just feels a little disjointed, I guess, to me, that whole moment from, from Mike. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's, I think it's the sense that, um, you know, kind of a theme through the show is, you know, you the promises that you make to your friends, and, you know, you don't lie to your friends. It's, it's kind of this level of trust. That's kind of the theme between those kids is... You know, we build a level of trust. And so I think it's, I think it's more, I took it more of like an impulsive moment where you've put your trust in this total stranger because your best friend is missing and you've had this, you felt like you've worked to establish like friends have a level of trust between one another. And now you're telling me that you, I trusted you to find my best friend before he was because he's in danger and he's he could die and now you didn't deliver on that promise. So I think that I took it more of it is an inconsistency if he stayed that way for the rest of the show, but because Eleven then uses the radio to let him hear Will's voice, I think that and he immediately snaps right out of that and comes back and he's like, Oh my gosh, I was wrong, I'm sorry, you know, kind of thing and he's back on eleven on mm-hmm. on that side. I took it more of this impulsive moment of grief rather than this um, innate character ability or um, character trait of his that's like, well, I'm just going to explode and, you know, everything that I I was before was a lie. Okay. I mean, I can kind of see what you're saying. I think I just see it differently. And maybe part of it is that I felt like the acting wasn't as believable as a lot of Mike's other scenes. I think that's, that's plausible. So maybe it comes down to a level of believability for me. And I do think, personally, just kind of on that, since we're on that kind of topic, I do think that that line where he says, what is wrong with you? Like, I think that that is kind of a lackluster line. It's like the whole, the whole point of that scene isn't that something's wrong with Eleven. Like, I, I always felt like that line was was seemed out of place there. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it was just the way that that scene was portrayed and, and the way that that was written, that it seems less believable as a genuine impulsive reaction of grief. 
I think that maybe that was the intent, but I would agree. I think that that whole scene where he's yelling at her, you know, as they're they're lifting Will's body out of the yeah out of the the water, um, yeah, I, I do think that scene was kind of played from Mike's as a character was just a little off-putting. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, so moving to my next note, um, I wrote, I'm honestly having a hard time seeing the purpose of including Lonnie as much as they do. I, um, I will touch on that when, when I go into it, but I agree completely. Yeah, I, I understand setting him up as far as, like, past, kind of laying the foundation of, like, who the Byers family is, but I think they include him too much and he becomes kind of throwaway character. Um, I, yeah, I don't. I just don't. I'm having a hard time seeing why they decide to like keep him in as much of the first season as possible as like as they do. It's it's just it's very weird to me, and, and I, I nobody likes him, so it just makes it feel like why are you still here? You know. Well, I do think it's. It's relative. It's relatively realistic that you know when Will dies, Lonnie comes back, and then he's turns out he's really just in it for the money. Mm-hmm. He's trying to sue. Um, but I also think that at that point in the plot, maybe this would be more of a plot line than a character line. I think at that point in the plot, all the other characters have branched off. You know, Nancy and Jonathan are gonna, are trying to you know figure out what's going on with Barb. What's this Demigorgon thing? You know. The, the kids in Eleven are on their path, Hopper's on his path, and now Joyce has nobody. And so maybe they did that on a plot level to give Joyce another caveat, like another character to talk to, and then maybe perhaps they, they made that decision because in that scene where Joyce finds out that you were just here for the money and you don't even know what school, what college Jonathan wants to go to, like, get out of my house. I think that's that moment for Joyce is very necessary. So I feel like Lonnie's almost just a catalyst for her. Yeah, that's the thing. He's more of a device right. than he is, right. like, a contr- contributing character. character. Yep, I and would agree. And that's the issue. Yeah. Um, not that I want to like him, because I don't. I right, don't care right. to like him. But I think that uh, they just use him as a device. Yeah. And that's all. Yeah. Um, I also sort of hate Jonathan and Nancy together. I hate it. I My question, I wrote myself a question. I wrote, a bro pulls you out of a snot tree hole and suddenly he's cuddle worthy? <laughs> because for some reason that's the moment <laughs> that Nancy's like... And then they go back to Nancy's house, and she's like, I don't want to be alone. And so he, like, lays on the floor, and then she's like, could you just come up here? And I'm like, oh, my God, kill me. Yeah. No, this is stupid. It's so dumb. I hate it. I yeah. hate it together. Mm-hmm. And I think that whole scene is so dumb yeah. with them in her room or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to. She doesn't want Can you just come up here? Like, what does it matter? What does it matter if he sleeps on your floor or not? Like, yeah. what? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't. Shut up, Nancy. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. Yep. Um, so here's a hot take. Okay, you ready for a hot take? Okay, I'm ready. Dustin would be a better leader of the friend group. I do not agree. Oh! I do not agree. I no. think that he uh, is a very good mediator in the midst of conflict. Um, and I think that he uh, thinks a little more of everybody in the group than Mike does. Um, and so I think that would be my hot take is that I think Dustin would be a better leader for the Mm -hmm. friend group. Um, I think that definitely is a hot take. Yeah. Uh, I think I might get some hate for that, but it's whatever. Um, obviously there's that pretty apparent Steve shift that happens in episode seven. Mm -hmm. Um, I, the first time I watched the show, I hated Steve Harrington very much. Uh Uh-huh. And then I watched the rest of the show, like, yeah. at, you know, past season one. Uh-huh. And now re-watching season one, I'm like, dang, Steve really is not bad. Like, he's fine. I know. The problem with Steve is not Steve. It's Steve's friends suck. Yeah. They suck. And so he does sucky things when he's around them because he wants to be accepted by his friends. 
But Steve never really initiates the sucky things. Mm. It's always Steve's friends. And I never really noticed that the first time I was watching it. But, like, I like Steve so much more now. Like, going into it a second time. Um, And I, obviously, everybody else liked Steve, too. Because, you know, fun behind-the-scenes fact is that um, the Duffer brothers only... Uh, wanted only had planned for Steve to be a season one character, but he was liked so much that they wrote him into the rest of the show. So, um, and I think that Joe Keery just does a phenomenal job at playing Steve. Yeah. So I think it's very well deserved that they kept him on. Um, and I think that the shift in Steve's character and motivation um, is a pretty good, like, oops, I've changed moment without being so tropey that it's annoying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so three out of three points for All the right. characters. Okay, so since this episode is very massive and we have many notes still left to go through, uh, since we're getting a little long already, we're going to go ahead and cut the episode here. We'll pick up the next episode with Holland's character breakdown and ratings, and then we'll move on to the rest of our categories from there. So until then... Thank you for joining us on this episode. We look forward to having you back the next episode. Don't forget that you can follow us on our social medias. We do have Twitter and Instagram at Lion and Mouse Podcasts, and our website is lionandmousepodcast.com. You can find our rules of engagement broken down and our notes from each episode. We also have a suggestion box there. You can tell us what you'd like us to review. Until next time, think wide and stay different. Stay different.